MSW Media. So, Asha, is the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals going to uphold the gag order that was issued by Judge Chutkin in Trump's January 6th case? Yeah, it's complicated. I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal contributor for ABC News. And I'm Renata Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down into a soundbite or a tweet. So you were an appellate law clerk. Right, Renato? Yes, so are you. So is I. So, you know, we listen to uh, a lot of these arguments. And I have to say, I was listening to that oral argument with Trump's lawyers last, what I guess is now it's a couple weeks ago. And I was cringing. I don't know if you were cringing. It was a cringy time. Um, Mainly because for me, the part that I was listening to at length, these judges were very prepared, by the way. I think they really came to the bench, you know, trying to figure out where to draw the line between threats and free speech. But the one of the judges kept posing a hypothetical, you know, trying to get them to discern where the boundaries were of their legal argument, because basically... Trump is arguing that this is an infringement on his free speech rights. And what they were trying to get Trump's lawyers to acknowledge is, look, if if that has to be balanced out, if there's a line that can be crossed that is that can be restricted, where does that line fall? And he refused to answer. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to be provocative. I think it was a deliberate strategy, Okay, Asha. So Chutkin's order as written probably went too far. It was I, I don't think it was as um, carefully re- drafted as it could have been. And so, as you point out, the Court of Appeals mm-hmm. judges are were trying to figure out how to how to refine it, make it a little bit better, make it less objectionable, you know, so mm-hmm. that if the Supreme Court ends up reviewing this, they're going to uphold the gag order. I think Trump's lawyer is like, I'm not going to help you at all. <laughs> I'm not taking any part in this. I know I'm losing. I know that I'm not going to get this gag order stricken down. I don't want the gag order to be better. I don't want to help you. I don't want to agree to anything. I don't want to concede anything. My view is this gag order is bad, and I'm not going to concede anything or, or, or give you anything. That's what I think he was doing. I, I think you're right. I just think that to me, that's kind of another way in which Trump's lawyers are sort of breaking the implicit norms that exist in the legal profession, right? I mean, you know, yeah, when you go to an oral argument, you're going to get hard questions. And you, like a part of being a lawyer is to be able to articulate the boundaries of your argument. Like where does, you know, take into its logical extreme where would it go? And for me, what I think was disingenuous is he wasn't making a, the affirmative argument that free speech to always trumps everything. 
um, no matter what, like Trump could be threatening everybody and he could, you know, be inciting people and telling them to take up arms and that would be okay. Like he was, and if I would respect it more, if he was like that, that's just my argument. I'm a, I'm a free speech absolutist. He was conceding that yes, there's some world in which, you know, there could be some restrictions, but when pressed on what line would need to be crossed for that to be triggered, he refused to answer. And to me, that is not good lawyering. It's disingenuous lawyering. And I I could tell that the judge was getting incredibly frustrated and I did not blame her. She was getting angry. Yes. So just so everyone, just to make, put a finer point on what Asha just said, which I, I don't disagree with anything you said. I think you're right. Um, essentially what, what Trump's lawyers, I think we're trying to avoid is a line in the opinion that says even, tr- even the response, you know, the appellants, you know, Trump's lawyers concede or Trump, even appellant concedes that, you know, X would be constitutional or Y would be constitutional or, you know, even take, you know, so or something like that. And they wanted to avoid that, that line. So they basically refused to answer the judge's questions. And, you know, one thing you, you kind of cast it as a norm. I think that's, that's fair to say it is the norm for an appellate lawyer. I will, I want to say to everyone here, although I was an appellate clerk and I've argued a lot of appeals in my career, that's not what I usually choose to specialize in, spend my time on as appeals. I don't enjoy it as much, but I've done it quite a bit. But I think that maybe what was going on here, Asha, is that most litigants, right? Like, let's say one of our listeners hired, hired me and we were doing an appeal. I would tell the listener, Hey, you're the chances of this case going to the Supreme Court are like zero. Okay. I mean, effectively zero. You can round down to zero because the, the Supreme Court takes so few cases every year and they meet such specific criteria that the chances that anybody's going to look at this other than this panel of three people that are going to be in front of me tomorrow uh, are almost no. So we have to do everything we can, even though they're hostile to you, even though it looks like we drew a bad panel for us, like we got to do whatever we can because this is the only shot we've got. Whereas I think. For Trump, it's a different calculus. Trump thinks that his his case is going to get in front of the, or his his you know his challenge is going to get in front of the Supreme Court. He thinks that's going to be more favorable to him for obvious reasons, and so I think that changes the calculus for his attorneys as well. Just so we're clear on kind of what the interests are being balanced, you know, Trump has obviously the the First Amendment right to speak. But there is an interest, and I don't think it's unusual for this to be protected, an interest on the judiciary's uh, behalf to protect the integrity of the system, to protect their own safety. And so, you know, the the absolutist argument, I don't think is going to fly here. There is a line somewhere. The question is where it's drawn. And one thing that I found was really Interesting and to me frustrating is that Trump's lawyer kept characterizing the speech that Trump was prohibited from as political speech. And to me, he's kind of subsuming essentially threats <laughs> as a form of political speech. That's what he was essentially making the argument for implicitly. And I just, I want to highlight that because, you know, we're at a, we're at now at a place where threats and intimidation 
are a part of Trump's political strategy. That's why he's making the claim that this is political speech. That's how he politics, I guess, you know, and um, the fact that, you know, we've allowed that and we've kind of put up with it for this long is what is now push. It's like, you know, I guess the Overton window is, is what we would call it is is now shifted to bring that bubble of quote unquote protected political speech to include that type of rhetoric. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I'll go a step further and say I think Trump is deliberately speaking in a manner to try to make questionable tactics like intimidation, making it look like political speech. He's trying to meld his political strategy in the election with his legal strategy, which involves like attacking judges and prosecutors and witnesses. And he's trying to make it hard. I mean, I think that's what what makes this a little bit challenging for the judges was that Trump has made an issue in the campaign. People like Fonnie Willis and, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, Letitia James and so forth. And so since he's talking about it in the course of his his presidential campaign, it creates some plausibility to his argument that it's political speech, whereas I think it's just a tactic. So I agree with you. Um, One thing I think our listeners may be wondering is like, why are these judges who are appointed by Obama and Biden on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals taking all of this stuff so seriously? And I think you and I've talked about this before, but just in case people haven't listened to other episodes, is because courts are very careful about what's called a prior restraint on speech. They're very careful about uh, judges or anybody telling people that they can't talk about things, particularly about political speech. Yeah, but I do think that it's fair to emphasize here that this is another area where Trump is a different kind of defendant or being treated as a different kind of defendant because he's also a candidate running for political office. Because if your run-of-the-mill defendant was attacking witnesses, you know, not someone who was not running for office was attacking the law clerk or whatever, um, I think it would be shut down. And so, you know, it begs the question, like maybe every defendant should just become a political candidate because then they can say, you know, they can can engage in their mob-like behavior and say, hey, this is a part of my political speech and it's protected. I mean, I agree with you that it's a tactic and it's a way that he's weaponizing the political system and his candidacy for office as a shield against the kind of restrictions that would normally apply to any other defendant who would be saying the same thing. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's fair. At one point, I'll, I'll make, and I think I was heavily criticized. Got a lot of, <clears throat> and I apologize by the way if anybody is hearing any issues with my voice. I have a sinus infection, so uh, not a hundred percent powering through today. Um, but I, I, I'll make the point that I. Um, had made, I, I think, and gotten a lot of criticism for on Twitter, which is from a First Amendment perspective, traditionally it is relevant whether somebody is a political candidate. The context of the speech does matter. And the courts do treat political speech differently than they treat speech about, oh, I don't know, you know, the Powerpuff Girls or G.I. Joe or something like that. Because ultimately, um, you know, that's what the First Amendment is most tasked with protecting. And so I think Trump was told this by some attorney. And so he's deliberately melding his legal strategy into his into his political strategy in order to take advantage of that. 
I mean, I don't know that it's that new, though. He's been engaging in ad baculum threats of violence uh, since 2016, right? I think you're right, though, that he may be doing it more consciously and deliberately against specific people in the judicial system um, in this case to kind of give it more protection. And in fact, to that point, Jack Smith filed kind of supporting uh, evidence of the impact of Trump's speech because he made another, I think, unhinged uh, truth social rant. Um, And Jack Smith provided, I think, you know, hundreds of pages of single spaced uh, evidence of the kinds of threats that were coming to the New York judge and his law clerk, uh, which is a separate case, but as a result of the kinds of things that Trump was saying about them. Yeah, I, I do think that's very serious. I have to say, I um, I feel very differently about the New York gag order. I think the New York gag order was very narrowly tailored towards judicial staff, not even the judge, but judicial staff. And I think there's a lot of um, documentary evidence to back that up. It's the sort of thing that I would usually think a court would uphold. I know it's tempor- temporarily stayed, but I, I would feel very bullish on the chances of that on appeal. I'm also, just to be clear, on the on the gag order in the D.C. case that Chutkin put in, I'm bullish on a gag order being upheld. I just don't think it's going to look exactly like the one that Judge Chutkin drew up because she, you know, she said he couldn't criticize Jack Smith, and you know, she um, was sort of vague on some of the. There's some of the language of the order, and that's a problem from a First Amendment perspective. So I think that'll get sharpened. So where do you think that they will draw the line? How do you think that it could be narrowed in a way that is upheld and also carves out with more specificity what exactly is prohibited? Whew, that's a good question. And I'm not, I, I, <laughs> it's complicated. It's really complicated. <laughs> um you know, there were, by the way, I think, I'll just point out, people who are smarter than me at the ACLU and other elsewhere who filed briefs that gave suggestions for how to modify the order. And I think Chutkin would have been wise to just adopt some of those um, to change their position because they, of course, were opposed to the order. Um, but I, I think that for me, the main there's really two main concerns. One is a lot of the people involved here are public figures, right? Like you, you talk about Jack Smith. I talk about Jack Smith. People on TV talk about Jack Smith all the time. The idea that like Trump can't talk about Jack Smith is kind of weird. Okay. Um, so I think talking about public figures, I think should generally be allowed unless he's talking about their testimony and trying to encourage them to provide specific testimony or something along those lines or encouraging like what I'll call a truth threat against them. Like, you know, not just saying, you know, Jack Smith's an animal or he's whatever he says, but actually saying Jack Smith lives here, you know, or something like that, or we need to punish Jack Smith or something that goes beyond the normal. And I'll just say as a prosecutor, I have people threaten me all the time. You know what I mean? Like that, I don't really feel like protecting Jack Smith is the number, the, the my number one concern. I would think more about the integrity of the proceedings and the witnesses more than I would be worried about Jack Smith. As somebody who has had my life threatened very much more seriously than by Trump. Um, Can I push back with my own provocative take? Okay. Well, okay. Well, sure. I think in some ways the idea that Trump is a political candidate ought to slice the other way a little bit as well. In the sense that, yes, Jack Smith is a public figure. You and I talk about Jack Smith. But despite our amazingly loyal 
and vast following that we have on our podcast, we do not nearly command the kind of influence that Trump does over his, you know, shadow MAGA army that's already gone to battle for him. We don't have the kind of megaphone and platform that he does to, you know, tens of millions of people um, that are ready to act on his command. And P.S., he has also signaled that he'll exonerate people if he is successful as a candidate. So in other words, the people listening to, yeah, yes, you get threatened, Renato, but I also think that the people threatening you fully understand that, you know, there could be real consequences for that. Whereas when doing it on behalf of Trump and he's promising already to, for example, pardon the January 6th people, you know, could they legitimately believe that, you know, they could assassinate a judge, they could assassinate a prosecutor. And, you know, when Trump becomes president, he'll just pardon me. And I bet he would, to be quite honest. Yeah, he probably would. So, you know, it's like, yes, he is a candidate and he is engaging in political speech, but precisely because he is a candidate and the kind of political speech he's engaging in has much more reach and influence and we already know that people are much more likely to act on it yeah i i I think i I don't disagree with anything you said i just i think from a first amendment perspective that's the sort of argument that's more of a reach for judges and it'll be interesting to see whether that gets upheld yeah i think that's right it's because it's so unique to this specific context right and it's kind of a way in which our and I've, I've mentioned this in so many other contexts before that our laws and our jurisprudence are written for the average person and don't contemplate the incredibly unique position that either the president or someone running for president um, occupies in in our life. And I'll even take it a step further. I, I agree with you, but I'll take it a step further. Um, the part of the problem is to tailor, um, let's say, a, a gag order that fits these unique circumstances requires the court to do something that's, if not unprecedented, certainly far outside the mm-hmm. norm and thus looks like the sort of discrimination against a particular Correct. candidate that would reduce um, faith in the judicial system. And so it's really putting the judges or potentially Supreme Court justices eventually in a very challenging position. Yeah, it's really, you know, it's sort of a form of asymmetrical warfare that Trump is engaging in. You know, it's like this way in which he actually holds a lot more power because of this unique circumstances and this kind of the way that he's able to weaponize anything that the judiciary does if they were to acknowledge that differential. I think that's right. I, I mean, I, I think a lot of our listeners are very frustrated that they feel like the system's unfair and has given a lot of benefit to Trump. I, I think there's something to that. Um, and I think I would say I'll take it more broadly is that people who don't play by the rules and people who um, try to transgress systems often can get some real advantage from that. And I think Trump does that to the nth degree in a way that no one has ever done in American history. I suspect people will be studying this for hundreds of years to come. Um, And I do think that our system is not very well equipped to stop Trump. And that's why I've always 
viewed, I've always tried to say that I thought the pol- the legal system was not the best equipped, the criminal justice system was not the best equipped to handle Trump and the things that Trump did. I appreciate that he's now being, uh, he's charged and he's being held accountable and this and that, and we'll see what happens. But I think in part, this podcast is a way of you and I exploring the limitations on what the criminal justice system can do to rein him in. Yeah, I agree with you that it's basically the last resort. I think of it as a Titanic. You know, the hull had all like whatever, five or six different compartments that were not all supposed to flood. Uh, but they did. And I kind of feel like that's where we are is, you know, the first compartment was the Electoral College and the second compartment was the impeachment process. And the third compartment was maybe the GOP rejecting him (laughs) and not letting him be a candidate. And so all of those have now flooded. They don't work. They and so we're left with this, you know, this last compartment, which may or may not um, hold up. And if it floods too, then the ship is sinking. It's no surprise that newsmakers try to manipulate the audience. They want you to believe that they are the one holding the line and they'll use any trick they can to get you there. But don't let them fool you. Get unspun. I'm Amanda Sturgill. I've been a reporter, and today I teach future reporters to cut the spin and think critically about what newsmakers say. My podcast, Unspun, shows you how to know when you're being manipulated by the news. Learn to spot the tricks and how to make up your own mind about what's true. So if you're tired of being fooled by the news, subscribe to Unspun today. Unspun, because you deserve the truth. I'm Allison Gill. That's A.G. from Mueller She Wrote in the Daily Beans, the premier podcaster for all things special counsel. And I'm Andrew McCabe, former acting director of the FBI and unlucky guy who was right in the middle of getting Robert Mueller appointed special counsel in 2017. And we're joining forces to document the investigations of Trump by the newly appointed special counsel Jack Smith as it happens. Whether it's analyzing court filings, letters, indictments, or prosecution and defense strategies. Or asking questions about special counsel regulations, rules governing classified documents at trial, or the scope of the probes. We'll be here first thing Sunday mornings to cover the latest breaking special counsel news and answer your questions with the assistance of some of the best experts out there. So follow, rate, and subscribe to Jack wherever you get your podcasts. Your only source for all things special counsel. I thought we could switch gears a little bit, Renato, um, you know, to, to something more fun like Elon Musk and the world of social media. Wow. I don't know what's um, more fun, because, Donald Trump or Elon Musk. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited. I'm going to plug a little book from my friend, uh, Ben Mesrich, who just wrote a book called Breaking Twitter. I'm excited to read it. It's basically about how Elon Musk has suffered a complete psychological meltdown since taking over Twitter. Wow. Free unpaid and- <laughs> sponsorship there. Okay. 
I know, I know. I should, Come yeah. On. But they're actually personal friends okay. of mine. Um, you should be hacking so, like Magic um, Mind or whatever. You know, whatever our thing is. I know. Okay, I'm just teasing. I know. <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, but I am excited to read that book because you know I have bas- more or less left Twitter. I mean, my account is still there, but it's just become such a cesspool, and some of the consequences of it becoming a cesspool. Uh, are that, you know, there's a lot of hateful content on there. There's a lot of accounts that have been reinstated, neo-Nazi accounts and, you know, ones that are spewing racist and anti-Semitic rhetoric. So basically, a couple weeks ago, Media Matters, which is a nonprofit, published an article that said, hey, look, all these big corporations, their ads are running alongside these neo-Nazi accounts. Um, I wonder if they know that or if they're happy with that. And then as a result of that article, uh, many of these big corporations pulled their advertising from X, um, including like IBM and Apple. And Musk lost his mind and he sued them. And I decided this weekend to take a look at the lawsuit and it seems pretty thin, but I can, I can describe it for you and you can give me your thoughts. Okay. This is good. Cause I will tell you my, I, I looked at it and I'm like, wow, this really sucks. Uh, and that was my tweet. I think it was like, boy, this is just garbage lawsuit. Um, okay. Let's, let's hear it. What, what, so what, what is this? This is in Texas, right? It's filed in Texas and instead of, so X is based in California. Media yeah. Matters is in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. What do Washington, D.C. and California have in common, Renato? They're not Texas. <laughs> right. And what t- <laughs> what advantage does Texas have? Well, Ken Paxson and his pals, which I think helped uh, Donald Trump, uh, excuse me, not only helped Donald Trump, but it helped uh, Elon Musk with this, are based in Texas. And they've got various right-wing judges. Haven't we talked about these very special uh, judicial, yes. uh, uh, these special districts where you, you can basically pick your judge. Yes. And Texas is a, a favorite venue. And also Texas doesn't have anti-slap laws. Yeah. Very, which, very weak. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which essentially penalize, I think, frivolous litigation. Um, and California has, has, uh, those kinds of laws that would make it potentially expensive for, Musk to, and I think DC also to right. to file a a legally frivolous claim. Just so people understand what that is, it's in the if in the First Amendment context, if you're public, you know, if if you file, let's say, a defamation lawsuit against me and Asha, um, please don't. Um, but if you do, it, it, just the mere fact of the lawsuit um, is costs us money and time and is an annoyance, and you know we have to hire lawyers and so on. And so, in a lot of jurisdictions like California, like you said. There are laws, anti-slap laws, that essentially transfer those costs back to the person who filed the frivolous lawsuit. And, you know, so filing in Texas had some real benefits for them. Yes. And it did land in front of a Trump-appointed judge, Mark Pittman, uh, who has advanced some other, um, I guess, novel interpretations of the law. So he struck down a Texas law that barred people under 21 from owning handguns because he said that age restrictions like that are unconstitutional under the second amendment. So 
he's ready to, I guess, you know, basically change the meaning of the Constitution. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, so the, in this context, maybe he will entertain the, the claims more than another venue would. But basically, Musk is alleging um, business disparagement, which is essentially like corporate defamation and uh, tortious interference of contract um, by Media Matters publishing this uh, article. And what they claim is that Media Matters, the claims that Media Matters made were false because Media Matters said that X was placing the ads alongside these contents. And the and in reality, according to X, the reason that these ads appeared next to this content is because Media Matters was specific was using an account that specifically followed only racist and anti-Semitic accounts and only corporate accounts. And as a result, the algorithm you know, con- decided that this is what this user wanted to see. So I suppose that could be true, but it doesn't change the fact that as a result, <laughs> I mean, you know, its algorithm did produce those juxtapositions. Yes. Uh, one thing I'm going to just point out that, uh, you know, kind of goes to our theme that we talked about in the last um, last segment is one unfair thing about life is that if you can progress it to past a certain point in a lawsuit, it can impose increasing penalties to the other side. And so this judge that you talked about, even if he ultimately doesn't rule in favor, even if this case never gets to trial, just merely forcing the, you know, the media matters to go through discovery or something could be very expensive time consuming process. Um, but I will just say it, the, the tortious interference is very bizarre. Tortious interference with the contract is usually like, you know, I know that these two parties are in a contract and I do something to try to like interfere or keep, you know, destroy that relationship in some way. Um, Here, it's just mere speech that was publicly, um, that was publicly uh, uh, made. I mean, it wasn't like directed specifically, right? It's not like this. Right. There wasn't like a direct interference or intentionality to try to prevent these specific advertisers from fulfilling their end of the contract with X. So yeah, to me that that tortious interference has a much higher bar than the the facts would substantiate here. The business disparagement um you know re- it's it's similar to I think a uh, individual defamation claim in that you know you make a false statement with actual malice, I think actual malice is required, and then it results in economic harm to the the plaintiff. Um, and I think, you know, and, and and like with defamation, truth is a defense. So again, I think that the piece here that what they said that these ads ran alongside these accounts is actually true. I mean, Musk's own complaint concedes that right their their defense is going to be right that this is absolutely true and that if even if it even if there's some nuanced way in which x or twitter or whatever can argue that it wasn't true um then there's no actual malice because they that's their genuine genuine understanding of how it worked or what they meant even if they were misunderstood by others 
And then as to the tortious interference one, like I said, I actually think there is maybe a First Amendment. We talked a little bit earlier today, Ash, about a First Amendment issue. I think there may be a First Amendment issue there. Like that interpretation of tortious interference, if like every time you speak, you have to consider how that speech might impact everyone's contracts around the world. Like that's that's probably uh, not not going to not going to stand up. So I, I guess I view this lawsuit not to be that different from a lot of the Trump lawsuits where the point was just to get a headline. I think that, you know, Trump, you know, that Musk was saying, you know, it's this thermonuclear lawsuit and yada, yada, and they're trumpeting some of the claims there. I think it was their attempt to sort of shock and awe people or wow them. And I do think it was also meant to harass and put some monetary disincentive on media matters and basically send a message to other journalists that if you write about the platform that will sue you, uh, I also think it really shows and demonstrates the alliance between the Trumpist MAGA crowd and Elon Musk, who, you know, let's face it, he's in trouble right now in, in large part because he's been promoting anti-Semitism. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there's no, I don't think we should mince words about that. He's anti-Semitic. He's pr- pr- he is promoting anti-Semitic views and advertisers like, we want nothing to do with this. I think that's his latest problem. And um, you know, he that crowd is okay with it because he's giving them a pro- the MAGA crowd's okay with it because he's giving them a platform, and you know they're they don't have that same reaction to that speech that you and I do. Yeah, you made a number of really important points, and yeah, it I do think it's worth emphasizing that Trump that sorry Elon Musk himself has endorsed or amplified anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. So it's not just that these accounts happen to be on the platform he owns and Media Matters did this. Um, They highlight that he himself has helped amplify things, including, for example, a conspiracy theory uh, of a 22-year-old Jewish man who was accused of being a neo-Nazi. And as soon as Musk got involved and amplified that, like this man got threats and, you know, all kinds of horrible things happening to him. Um, And then the second part about the kind of lockstep maneuvering between Elon Musk and, you know, GOP officials, um, we've seen this before with the Twitter files where Elon Musk served up kind of very selective uh, files from internal information that substantiated these uh, conservative talking points. Um, and again, here, as you noted, as soon as Musk, you know, announced that he's suing Ken Paxton, the attorney general of Texas and the attorney general of Missouri are, got on board and said, we're going to sue Media Matters, too. And and of course, Elon Musk's uh, tweets to them. Great. You know, so it's just uh, this weird collusion. And I think you're right that the goal here is to chill speech, um, among other things. But I do think that also the discovery process isn't going to be very good for Elon Musk, because if this were to proceed to discovery, then I assume Media Matters would be able to get a lot of information about how Musk's algorithm works or X's algorithm works. Um, as a part of of what the claim is, and I don't know that that's something that X would want to divulge. Yeah, I agree with that, but it's just it's so expensive. I mean, if I was representing Media Matters, I would tell them, "Look, our goal here is one of attrition. We're gonna try to 
push off this lawsuit for as long as possible. <laughs> We're not going to do this quickly. We're going to spend as little money as possible and wait this guy out. He's going to find some other shiny objects to get upset about. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's going to get mad at Jewish people again or whatever he's, whatever his latest thing of the day is, uh, some other uh, group that he's going to insult. Um, and then he'll, he'll find some other shiny toy and, and he will decide he doesn't want to continue to pursue us because it could cost millions and millions of dollars in legal fees to go through discovery process here and any of that stuff. Yes, they could find all that stuff out, but it would be protected by either protective order or attorney's eyes only or something along those lines. And like at the end of the day, media matters wants to keep publishing stuff, right? I mean, they want to keep, they want to just, they're, they're not, they're they're not in the business of lawsuits. They're, They're there to keep, keep, you know, publishing articles. And so they, they want this to not be a distraction. And I, I, I really do think it is, a distraction and a deterrent to speech. And it's the sort of thing that if conservatives were actually, I say conservatives, I, I don't even like the term anymore because I don't think there's anything conservative. I know, me MAGA. neither. Sorry about this MAGA. There's nothing conservative about this MAGA stuff um, at all. Um, it, but I think if they had any principles, they would be against this as well and condemning it. Yeah. Well, maybe X will go bankrupt before anything further happens. <sighs> Oh my God. It's something you and I, didn't you, you and I cry about this at one point or do mourn the loss of Twitter? Cause you and I, I think gained a lot yeah. from it and had yeah. a great community there. It's very sad. Yeah, it's sad. It's sad to see what it's become. It's no surprise that newsmakers try to manipulate the audience. They want you to believe that they are the one holding the line and they'll use any trick they can to get you there, but don't let them fool you. Get unspun. I'm Amanda Sturgill. I've been a reporter, and today I teach future reporters to cut the spin and think critically about what newsmakers say. My podcast, Unspun, shows you how to know when you're being manipulated by the news. Learn to spot the tricks and how to make up your own mind about what's true. So if you're tired of being fooled by the news, subscribe to Unspun today. Unspun, because you deserve the truth. So before we go, I don't know about you, Asha, but Thanksgiving was really something at our house. We had a lot of people there. And, you know, last time you told me, you're like, when is when are you going to put up Christmas decorations? I'm like, oh, usually the day after. My wife could not contain herself. So our house got all Christmased up the day before uh, Thanksgiving. In fact, she talked me into, we went to like all these stores, Home Depot and Lowe's and all these places. And I got, I bought a 50 something dollar humongous Santa. That's basically her size that she's just super excited about. My stepdaughter finds it creepy, scary. Uh, it's like a creepy. Uh, where, where is this Santa located? On your front lawn? He's near the Christmas tree. Inside your house? Yes, he's in our home. And, and my wife. My wife's like, do you want to buy all these outdoor things where it's like these plastic mice and plastic carolers and stuff? I'm like, well, we already have a deer that she we purchased this last week. I'm like, let's let's we can purchase something indoor. I knew she liked it, but it's something. So we we're we're super Christmas in in my household right now. We're very Christmassy. I feel like a good use for the Santa at other times of the year would be you could position it like near the window and kind of backlight it so that. You know, like if you go away on vacation, like people think that 
there's a large man at home. We could use it to scare the teenager as well, you know, like someone's watching. Yeah, I'm just um, saying it could it, it could be a good like um you know, home security type of system. There you go. There you go. We we also uh um Henry got a Thanksgiving turkey toy, which is completely destroyed already. There's nothing left of the turkey. Um, may it rest in peace. And a, But he also has a Hanukkah toy, which I refuse to play tug of war with. We only do fetch because it's very cute Hanukkah coffee cup thing. So there you go. Henry's very festive too. Well, my Thanksgiving was pretty good. I actually felt like I got a lot of stuff done that I had been meaning to do. Um that Thanksgiving day, you know, we went to a couple of different places, um, celebrated with a friend and then, uh, my boyfriend's family. I have to say my children were kind of annoyed with me because they wanted to go to their high school football game, which I was like, why, why is a high school having a football game on Thanksgiving day? Like this yeah, no, feels inappropriate no. to me. Yeah. Um, anyway, but aside from that, it was really good. And I did get my Christmas tree up, though it's not decorated yet. Um, Pancake is exploring and plotting, I think, how to bring the tree down. So we'll have to see it. I'm pretty sure it's it, it, it's secure, but I'm not sure. Um and otherwise, I got my office finally set up. And speaking of pancake and uh, plants, I wanted to get a plant for my office. And I went to Ikea and was looking at all these great plants. But everything I looked at was poisonous for dogs and cats. Really? Yeah. That's yeah. Crazy. Everything I looked at, I would Google it. And it would say, this is toxic to dogs and cats. And I know the pancake was going to try to eat the plant. So I ended up getting a fake plant. Um, no Chris, wow. I have a wreath up on my front door. No Christmas stuff on my lawn or anything. I'm not really into the lawn stuff. But uh, one suggestion I have if you want to buy other stuff is just wait till the day after Christmas because everything goes on sale and then you have it for next year. Wow. I don't know if I could convince my wife to do that. I mean, we've got to be super festive. And we are actually going on a vacation in December, hopefully. Oh, where? Um, if... Uh, we're going to, um, St. Lucia, uh, to a resort. That's like a wellness resort. One of these places where you get a lot of massages and yoga. Will you send me information on that? You know what I mean? Sure. Very relaxing. That's what I need. Yeah. So we'll be home for Christmas, but just barely. So like, you know, Christmas will have to be my mom this year. Awesome. M-S-W Media.
no surprise that newsmakers try to manipulate the audience. They want you to believe that they are the one holding the line and they'll use any trick they can to get you there. But don't let them fool you. Get unspun. I'm Amanda Sturgill. I've been a reporter, and today I teach future reporters to cut the spin and think critically about what newsmakers say. My podcast, Unspun, shows you how to know when you're being manipulated by the news. Learn to spot the tricks and how to make up your own mind about what's true. So if you're tired of being fooled by the news, subscribe to Unspun today. Unspun, because you deserve the truth.